0: If you're interested in sponsoring how you play the game, please email us at podcast at Your sponsorship may be tax deductible. Please remember, these episodes are considered for mature audiences only. There is some language and some mature discussion. Well, it's that time again. No, it's not time to wonder why anyone would carry a two iron in their bag. It's time for How You Play the Game, the official podcast of the OSIP Foundation, Incorporated. Yours truly, Jack Furlong, with you as we talk to you about what's going on as far as the world of sportsmanship is concerned. This is the second episode of the month of December. The year is 2020. Glad to be with you. As always, check us out online at osipfoundation.org. You can contact the show. The address is podcast at OSIPFoundation.org. And on social media, Facebook.com slash osipfoundation Foundation and Twitter and Instagram, both at OSIP Foundation, hashtag how you play the game. Across the way from me on the screen is always the producer engineer, Mr. Sean Ryan. Sean, hello. How are you?
1: Well, I'm alive.
0: How are is, you? That, I, I too can claim this. So <laughs> I think we're all in the same boat and uh, we can't ask for anything more. We have a fantastic guest with us today coming to us all the way from across the Atlantic Ocean in a uh, small country uh, known as England. Uh, He is the managing director of a company that he founded called The Third Team, which you can check out at thethirdteam.co.uk. Mr. Nathan Sherritt. Nathan, how are you? Thanks so much for joining us today.
2: I'm really good, thanks, uh, Jack. Uh, You know, I was here to like to to be joining you. Yes, we really pleased. Thanks very much.
0: Uh, it is our pleasure. Um let's start with the question that is on everyone's mind. How is your golf game right now?
2: Um it's not great. And um and that has to be partly put down to me not applying myself enough and partly down to a majesty's government here in the UK not allowing me to play golf for the last month.
0: This this is this is Proof positive why uh, we clearly uh, needed to uh, escape in the 1700s and um, start the Revolutionary War. So we're going to rewrite the textbooks right now, just to uh, <laughs> just to make sure that that, that footnote is in there, um, so that we can all play golf. You that, nailed that's, it, Sean. That's, that's the that's the reason. <laughs> listen, listen, my handicap just dropped to about 30 and change. So we we we've got to get out there. Which, I mean, there's, 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 that's, that's what her majesty would want. Okay. Um, and I have no evidence to support that. <laughs> um, Nathan, we, 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 we were having you on because I stumbled upon your site uh, and your company, the third team. And why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about uh, what you do with it. Uh, and, and then we'll get into uh, how you started it, what you experienced, and we'll kind of just go bit by bit. So start off with. Uh, a general summary: what the group does and uh, and and why it does what it does.
2: Okay, so really, the, the sort of the crux of what we're doing now is working with referees. Um, on, and traditionally, we would have delivered workshops, but um, obviously, we're in the middle of a global pandemic, which is not was not on the agenda certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, this year we had a big, big plans to work with a number of um, county football associations. So there's 52 county football associations within the national FA in in England. Um, And I had a relationship with a lot of them ready for basically delivering workshops with referees, whether that be in pre-season camps or whether that be in just an evening where I obviously travelled to the... to the county um, FA headquarters and and deliver to the referees, whether that be promotion candidates, whether that be centre of referee and excellence referees, whether that be, you know, new referees, newly qualified referees who are struggling to adapt to some of the um, demands of of, of working with club officials, with players, with spectators, um, and the challenges that that brings. And and I think that um, really... What, what, we, what we're looking to do with those guys is to give them tools to equip them to work with, um, as I say, players who are going to demand a lot of them, you know, looking for decisions, looking to challenge them verbally and potentially physically, um, looking to work with the challenges of parent spectators. I don't think there's a, a more demanding group of spectators than parent spectators. You know, if you go in front of 60 or 70,000, you can't hear those voices and you can't pick out those individual sort of you know bits of abuse verbally or whatever whereas when you are a young referee you know you can be 14 and and qualify uh, as a match official in this country and you know when you're that young you you know and you're trying to start out it's not just the players on the pitch that are developing in youth football it's the referees too Um, and I don't think that's often um, you know taken into account I think a lot of people are just expecting the referee to turn up and get every single thing right immediately and there's no no space or growth for them to learn and develop. So really just trying to help them with, with that and deal with those pressures that, that are going to come their way when, when they're out in the middle.
0: You, you know, what's funny is that everything that you just said is such a universal truth. I think not only in, on, on in your side of the world, but on our side as well, um, you know, as a, as a, as a baseball umpire myself, you, everything that you just said, I think translates Perfectly, you know we, when we train young officials, the first thing we say is that you are expected to begin perfect and then improve, which is a complete impossibility um, and, oh. and and on top of that, what you said about parents uh, <laughs> could not be more true I mean I, and I've been doing this for almost fifteen years now, and the, the parents can be the worst. Of the bunch, worse than I mean, worse than coaches and other players, and just general fans sometimes. And uh, I I know plenty of, of other officials who have quit because of stuff like that. And I imagine that that is something that your training uh, is meant to curb in a way to say that you know, with with the proper resilience and the proper. Um, Mental, mental toughness, so to speak. Yeah, you know, you can you you can overcome this, and you can really be the best official that you can be, which is something that we need in all sports, whether it's uh, football, as you call it, as we call it mm-hmm. soccer over here because we're weird like that. Um, but it doesn't matter the sport. Uh, the number of officials, the number of referees, uh, is decreasing very, very quickly. And it seems like your organization is one that will help stop that by providing those officials with the tools that they need to, to succeed and to grow.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, look, we in this, in this, in England, in England, in the English FA alone, we have roughly between 28 and 31,000 fluctuates referees. Um, but we've taken a big, big hit. This, mm-hmm. this year with the pandemic, a lot of referees have, have decided not to not to reaffiliate, not to to continue refereeing. You know, for this certainly this period that we're in now, of course, um, because obviously, you know, today as we speak, Tuesday the eighth of December, we have the first vaccination here uh, mm-hmm. taking place. But we're oh, at wow. the start of a long long journey with that, and and I think that you know until people who are potentially vulnerable have got that, then I think that's going to really affect referee numbers. So one of my big sort of selling points when I'm saying, you know, you should work with me to the county FAs is, look, I, I want to help your retention, you know, because in, we are losing around 7,000 of those referees every year on average. And, and that's been the average for the last 10 seasons. Oh. But um, what, we're, and what we're losing is we're losing operators at a good level, semi-professional level, even bordering on professional level because of the abuse and a lot of the demands on the game that have changed. And, and what we're replacing them with is roughly the same figure. But, but but as I touched on before, you know, we're replacing them with young people who may be doing it for, for a specific school award or whatever it might be that they're taking up refereeing, but they need time to learn. They need time to grow. They can't just come in at the level that, that the ones that have departed the game have. And so that's the big challenge that I think we, we have to face. But yeah, as you said, you know, mental toughness, I'm a mental toughness practitioner and resilience. They're the two key watchwords within my business, absolutely. Um, and it's, it, they're all things that, you know, they're, they're skills that, that can be improved as any skill can be, whether that be handwriting or kicking a football, resilience and, and mental toughness are things that, that are on a scale that we can develop and learn.
0: You know you as I'm reading your um your story about your beginnings and whatnot that you sent me, I'm highlighting a bunch of different parts of it, and I was empathizing so much because of your vulnerability to discuss anxiety that you've dealt with um you know the 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 stories that you told were hitting home because I know I have felt, I, I would say, I, I, I don't know if I could say 100% the same way, but within 90% the same way, um, you know, you, you just, to, to, to touch on one or two, you talked about levels of OCD where you were uh, pouring boiling water on plates and cutlery uh, because you were, you were concerned with getting sick. And, and, and I'm, I was reading that and I'm thinking to myself, um, yeah that's that's me too. That is me too. I, I, I can't say that I poured boiling water, but I can say that I have done similar things like uh, avoiding meals period because of the exact same reason And you know and what what, what you described, I think is the, the, the perfect precursor to to explain why you know you you ended up doing this, as, as what you're doing. So talk a little bit about your upbringing through and experience through this anxiety and then and, and, and lead us into the events that uh, took you from being just a soccer referee or I'm sorry, a football referee. I should I, I have to get that right uh, to to eventually the event that we'll get to that that kind of spurned this uh, this whole thing started.
2: Yeah, no, you know, you're absolutely right. And and I've written about this in a piece that I did for uh, mental health week. uh, And that was back in May. Um, uh, You know, it's a global um, thing and it's a great thing. And and what what I've done um, through the third team is I've shared a story from the mental health foundation um, each day of the week culminating to, I do a weekly blog um, and in the weekly blog, I wanted to make the weekly blog blog solely dedicated to my my story. So I shared other people's stories throughout the week, coming into my story. So basically, um, when I was a young boy, I, I had a, a lot of um, a lot of anxiety, um, and I, and I was I was very very unhappy for a lot of the early years when it came to leaving the family unit and and doing the things that I think a lot of people. You know, maybe listening to this, I've got children or whatever. Those things that they, that they do with the children, you know. So you you bring your, your children up, and then it, it's time for them to come to nursery or is it kindergarten that they call it in, yep. in the US? Yeah. So it's time for that um, moment, and then and then they go into school. And and, and I, you know, I have vivid memories of things more than I've I've written in that piece. You know, when I, when I started that nursery or kindergarten, I um I had um I had a real attachment problem in terms of leaving and and actually immersing myself within the group the other group of children um and um and then obviously what I have written in um the the piece there and how I start the piece about traffic you know big big used to get a big problem with traffic would feel real anxiety feel real stress used to have to get you know my mother to like hold my hand you know when I'm sort of five years old maybe around that age and maybe a little bit younger and and it was a real real problem for me um and and I think that things started to get recognized um at school you know people saying well he doesn't play in the same way you know observations of things like that and 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 these were a lot of challenges that I had throughout my my education so I kind of fast forward to um the my time in secondary school where, you know, I'd, I'd been a relatively, you know, active participant in school life at, at primary school level. And when I come into secondary school, uh, I, I believe it'd be high school, wouldn't it, with, with, in, in the US. And, and um, you know, when we had that time, it, I, I went from being relatively comfortable and things and, and that transition to that next level was quite a shock for me. Um, and and it, I found it really, really difficult and I ended up having no friends at the start um, of, of of that the first year of that um, you know that that school, and 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 it was just it just happened to be that you know I, I'm, I managed to pick up one friend and then you pick up another group of friends and all of a sudden you know I ended up actually ended up being one of the most popular um, kids in the school. We had the yearbook at the end of the year and and that you know they voted me uh, I think they voted me most changed. I think they voted me Something doing my smile, best smile, or something like that. So, no, I was absolutely delighted, obviously, that that I'd been able to make an impression upon, you know, um, basically classmates and and people as well, and it, it made a big, big difference to me. But what actually happened as I was leading into my GCSEs, um, um, you know, sort of the big exams that you would take uh, here before you left the, the 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 secondary school or high school was was I had to, a number of assessments and things and um and they they looked at me and they said well look you have uh you're on the autistic spectrum you have a lot of you know a lot of challenges that fit with that but we can't say that you're definitively one thing or another so that was like a good thing for me because it helped me get extra time, but that was, it was a means to an end, you know, it was to help me get extra time in exams. It didn't, it didn't help me understand who I was as a person. And, and so that then I suppose probably best, best the best way to put that is to, is to say that, you know, I went to um, sixth form after that and, and, and um, that, that made a big, big, uh, impression on me because it meant that I couldn't do exams really once I'd got past a certain level like, I didn't have the ability to to get thoughts down into 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 sort of exam work and things like that and that made it really really difficult for me so I ended up doing um, like uh, pr- um, progressive learning throughout the so you would you'd be examined continually examined through, uh, examined through your, your, your spell so I went down that road instead of doing you know, a subject and then one big examination at the end of it. And, um, and, and I really, really did well actually at sixth form because I I adapted after a difficult two or three, um, months, I adapted really, really well for my two years there. And, and I was actually able to use that experience to help me when I decided to go to university afterwards. And, um, and, really that's where, you know, we hit on what exactly what you're talking about. You know, I, I'm from, um, I'm from the Northeast of England and probably the, the best known city probably in America in the Northeast of England is, is Newcastle. Um, so, you know, if you imagine that, then, then I went to, to a, another city, which I'm sure is very, very well known in America, Manchester is where I moved to for um, university. Um, so I'd adapted pretty well and I'd, I'd being able to make friends again and, and I felt really really good in, in that respect um, and I had a really good time when I initially moved to Manchester you know it was a new new city new place a bit of a culture shock you know in terms of you know coming into an environment where the the public of the area was a lot more diverse than what you would see there was there was a lot more of them you know the population was significantly greater I was living right in the city centre and um and it was a big big you know kind of uh thing for me that that I, you know i would end up basically being um in that position where i was like wow this is a whole new city i'm a young boy i must have been 18 um and it just really really opened my eyes because what i saw was you know things that you would never see probably in the northeast and it's not uh, you know it's not we're not we're not a, a sort of closed area up here it's just there's more because I, I see it now as, as, as really the second city to London. And then the mentality and the pace of life is very much that of London, which links perfectly into the point that I'm making, you know, up to, to Christmas I was doing probably quite well, didn't come back that much, didn't think too much of it. But then I found it really, really difficult. And we talk about pace of life. I've grown up um, about 20 minutes from the city, uh, a big city, um, in the northeast of England, but when I when I open the curtains in the morning, I, I see fields um, and I see trees. And for me to wake up in the morning in Manchester to open up my curtains to see a, a big concrete jungle, uh, you know, uh, flyovers and advertising boards and you know everything you would expect to see in a city, but also the fact that I saw. Well, you know, a great example of this is, is you know, one morning I saw, um, I opened the curtains eight o'clock in the morning and there was like a canal in front of where the accommodation that I was living in was. And on the other side of this canal was a man and he's got a big long overcoat on um, and nothing else. He's completely naked underneath and, and the coat is open and you can see. But what you can really see is needles and syringes hanging out of his arms and his feet and all sorts and that was a typical sight when you ventured into the city, particularly um, in the evening. And so for me, somebody who's grown up in a sort of semi-rural environment, to go into that and to feel that, it was a very, very threatening thing. And then obviously, you know, you, you just touched on it before and, and I bring it round to that. You know, this started to have a really detrimental effect on my mental health and well-being. Um, and, I, and I did. I got into a place where, as you say, I... Um, I was, I became, I just didn't want to get ill. I didn't want anything to go wrong. I wanted to be so, I was so, I suppose the word really is paranoid about making sure that everything was going perfectly and everything was going right, that I didn't have any weakness or show any weakness because really the irony is I didn't have any weakness. I didn't want to have any weakness, but it was because I felt so vulnerable. And I think that um, that was the reason why I was doing things like um, sterilizing by pouring, pouring boiling water over cutlery and plates and all sorts and you know the only thing I feel truly grateful for is the fact that even though I was doing it I could recognize from a sort of third third party third eye type thing that that I was actually that this was not wrong this was not sorry that this was wrong that this was not healthy behavior Um, and it actually did allow me to to have some sort of view on it but you know I knew that it still wasn't right and that it was very very difficult for me to go through that period um, and then you know, just as you say, I came away from that after a year because I had a really terrible six months after Christmas where I was really hanging on um, and I wanted to finish the year and, and have a nice round off, but I was, I was really struggling and, and I was coming back um, to the northeast every weekend after that because of because it, you know the best way i 've described it in the past is it was like through the week in Manchester, I was holding my breath and I could breathe and be normal and be me when I was back in the, in the Northeast on the weekends. And then that was a, you know, a big thing for me. So, so I walked away from that at the end of the the, the first year and, um, and, and you know, that was kind of the end of my education really in any formal sense Um, and and certainly full-time education anyway. And, and I, I then had a period where I was, I was doing some um, volunteering, with my, with my mother's company and I was doing some volunteering with some other people that I knew through the small business community um, in the Northeast. Um, and then, but all the time looking for a job and all the time looking for something to do to try and build a career really. And it was something that, you know, I was just going to fall into a career really like I think so many do. And um, eventually, after 14 months, something came up. Actually, funnily enough, two things came up. I was offered two jobs at once, so I've gone 14 months of no's and rejections and all sorts. And then I got two offers, um, and I still don't regret to this day taking the, the road that I did take. Um, but as I'm here now and I've set up my own business, you know, it, it won't take a genius to work out that it didn't work out. And I was, um I was I was actually in that job that I took um, in October two uh, was it October September October two thousand eighteen. I was in that job for seven weeks, and I came to the point where again I needed to reevaluate everything I've just touched on. So I came through the door and I was very naive. You know I'd never been in a workplace. I'd never had any uh, ideas about what this might involve or what this kind of life might be and um yeah just just came in and, and, I, and i was constantly observing you know looking around how does he do that how does she do this you know trying to understand the behaviors of of the workplace and what was expected and all those things you know that that i think is pretty normal for a young person uh, just as time went by, you know, first first couple of weeks went by and, you know, I'm trying to learn the rules and the demands of the job and all the things like that. And then one day I get this really, really weird encounter from the departmental boss, so not my line manager, but the departmental boss, who just said to me, he said to me, Nathan, I don't like the way that you're looking, I don't like the way that you're, you know, the way that you, you're moving here, I don't like the way that you have this or about you, and I thought, this is really strange, You know, this is not um, a normal criticism or a legitimate criticism. But I just said, look, okay, sorry, I'll, you know, I'll do whatever I'll do about it and, and, and we move on. And then another couple of weeks later, you have a meeting where everybody in the business would have a, a, a meeting with their direct line manager. So my line manager was having a meeting with a departmental boss. And I got a message, okay, do you want to come in? So I come in and I was, I was actually living probably about 30 miles away from where this, um, where this, this business uh, was based. And a couple of times I came in probably a little bit after we, we needed to start. So I just, I just said, look, we, we need to have clear line of communication here, okay? I know it's not ideal, maybe traffic was really bad, things like that, um, but I'll make the time and we'll make sure that there's no problem. And then it wasn't really good enough for them. Um, but I thought my attitude was spot on. Um another thing was was which I found absolutely outrageous was he went, I don't like the way you sit at your desk. And I just didn't get that at all. Didn't get that at all. Um and then there was a couple of other little nitpicking things that were just not not quite right. And then another week or two later, maybe just before the end. The, the the departmental boss sat quite close to us in the office and he just went, you know, uh, for context here, I don't, I don't drink alcohol um, and I was working for a gambling company. So that's, the, that's the, the, the sort of the little bit of the point that I need to make before I say this. He just said to me, he said, Nathan, you don't drink, you don't gamble, what do you do? And that was a really, really insulting thing that actually probably I, I should have brought up at the end, but it didn't. And, and that's a regret that I'll, that I'll hold, but... Um, yeah, it it was a clear agenda against me. My face didn't fit. The the departmental boss was clearly unhappy with my line manager for bringing me into the organisation. He didn't like me at all. And, um, yeah, got called in a week later. Nathan, we want you to move on. Not a problem uh, because I don't really want to be in this toxic environment, this culture anyway. So it it, it suited all parties Um, and... It was just one of those things that I think was an absolutely horrific experience for, for somebody to have their first job. I wouldn't wish it. on my worst enemy. And it was the real spark for what happened. But actually, I got uh, let go on a Monday. Um, and, and on the Sunday before that, the game I officiated, which was the spark for the, the third team to really come to life – was um took place so actually i had a really horrific two days if i'm being totally (laughs) honest Uh, because what what happened in the game was it was a game where we it was a really freezing cold sunday morning 25th of november 2018 and um we, we were doing a game and and it came in about 79, 80 minutes, maybe 81 minutes. There wasn't, there was about 10 minutes left for sure. And it was about 9-1, I think at the time. Um, and we were in the center of the field and we came round in a sort of a loop and I was blocked, but I heard a shout and then I became unblocked and there's two guys sort of head to head with each other. So I'm, I'm then looking at this thinking, oh, there's going to be a confrontation here. What I didn't expect was that there would be a headbutt from this is from a player who's on the winning team, by the way. A headbutt of an opponent, opponent, and then before the guy, as the guy was recoiling from the headbutt, he gives him a big swing with a left fist, and this guy is knocked out. But he's actually having a fit before he hits the ground. So I'm then on my own. You know, I'm not working with assistants here. This is this is actually a youth football game, and. Um, I've got a decision to make. Do I go towards the player who's just been assaulted on the football pitch, or do I go towards the offender who's now walking off the field of play into the parent spectators? So I, I look at it and I see parent spectators rushing on to the aid of the victim. So I then decide to go through the, the process of basically dismissing this player, but obviously it clearly needed more than that. And, and uh, this was exceptional misconduct at in the most blatant and obvious terms. And I took the name and everything. And I said, look, you better get away because I was really concerned that being on my own, that the two sets of parent spectators would turn on each other and I would have a brawl of about 40 or 50 people. And that's the last thing that you want when you're on your own and somebody's actually having a fit on the ground because they're being physically assaulted. So I got rid of him, literally. Um, he, he left the, the area and, and I, I'm absolutely certain to this day that that was the right thing to do. Um, the ambulance came and said, "Look, we can speed the police up here for you. We can get in touch with the control room um, at the emergency services, and we can we can we can get this quicker." So they did, and the police came. But everybody had gone by the time this had happened because this the ambulance came for the for the for the for the young man. The young man had to have brain scans. He had to have all sorts. Um, because it was really, really a serious situation, and, and there was certainly fear for his um, mental capacity and all sorts of things like that. With, with such a severe reaction to to being punched, you know, as we know, one punch can kill, and there's there's just no doubt about that. So we we had the police there, and, and forensics was taken on the pitch and all sorts of things like that. And then the police said, "Look, will you will you come to the the police station with us? We we need to take this." basically your account of what's happened. You're the person responsible for what's happened here. We need to take that into account. So, so I went there and, and obviously um, helped the police with that by giving them the full picture and, and helping that. And, and it just shocked me. But the adrenaline on the day got me through the day. The next day I was having flashbacks during the day. Now the next day also was the day that the company decided to get rid of me. So I'd, I'd been having quite intrusive thoughts. I'd been having flashbacks. It was really unpleasant. You know, I'd seen a lot of trouble in football through refereeing because I'd been refereeing for three or four seasons by that stage. Um, but nothing had, had had a reaction like that in my mind. And I wasn't dealing with the mental consequences of that. And the anguish really is, is what it was. And I didn't really necessarily get the support. And I think that's through one or, one or two different ways. And that's another big, big factor for me. Um, you know, with the third team now, it's something I'm deeply, deeply passionate about, is making sure that as an official, you have as many lines of support as possible, and you identify what those lines of support are, so that if one fails, there's another to back it up, but if that one fails, there's another to back that up, because I always think that it's really, really important, I went through that experience alone, um, and it really, really hurt me for a little while, but luckily, you know, again, we come to resilience, we come to mental toughness, I'm quite resilient and I'm quite mentally tough so I was actually able to to compartmentalize that and put it behind me but yes the the job uh was lost and I then decided to take time you know a number of people in my family had suggested to me Nathan look you've got this autism diagnosis that you've had for about um four or five years now you need to do something about this so actually I, I thought right okay yeah no that's that's fair and I did and I was able to seek out a really great guy um, who helped me in, in a big, big way, local guy in the Northeast. And he actually, well, I, went, I, went, I worked with him for about three or four months uh, on a weekly basis for, for two, three hours a week on, you know, understanding autism, bringing it to the relevance of me and then actually being able to appreciate what is my personality traits and what are what 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 is responsible what is, respons- what is I'm responsible for in effect um, and that changed my life the best way i can describe that is if you have a television and you've got a lot of wires behind it and all those wires are tangled and it's like untangling all those wires and having really clear lines in and and it really really changed everything for me and it allowed me a lot of um, you know, I was able to step back and to understand things that happened right at the very start, as I touched on there, when I was a very small boy, things that had happened throughout my school career, things that happened when I was at university, just really everything that had happened in my life up to that point. And it allowed me to make changes to accommodate and account for this autism. And now that I knew what it was and what it entailed, it, is, it brought me a lot more inner peace, happiness, And and it was a lot more, you know, this is who I am and and I can accept who I am. And I understand enough about me, you know, it was like an awakening for me. So it really, really helped me a lot. And then somebody said to me, look, you've got something here. And and I really struggled to visualize what it was it being the third team, but you know, little by little, I had help from people in the small business community. i had help from a mentor with autism uh, training who'd helped me a lot with that. And, we set the business up and I started to see what was real in terms of possibilities, you know, and in terms of helping people with mental health and and helping people with mental toughness and resilience. And yeah, we're, what are we, 18, 19 months down the line now. And, and I'm absolutely delighted with the progress we're making in spite of the global pandemic that we face. We've been able to keep going, been able to keep helping people, been able to keep working forwards and, and I'm absolutely delighted about that. So yeah, I suppose that really hopefully answers your question in a yeah. long long winded way, but yeah. It, it does,
0: but it it was a completely necessary answer in order to provide the context behind it because we've all had, you know, stories very much like that. I know I know my story is, you know, I, again, if I if someone were to ask me the same thing, I would probably give very similar responses in that, you know, you would I would have to go you know, down one road in order to explain how I got to the next road, which is exactly what you did. Um, you know, a, a quick question before we move on. You know, you said that this this football game was a youth football game that sparked this. How old were these kids that that were that eventually headbutted and punched and whatnot?
2: It was under 16, so I think that at that time there would have been a mixture of 15 and 16 year old boys. Wow. Mm.
0: So, so I mean, it's it seems like. This is this this can be something of a of a universal uh, thing in that it's not you know we we, we kind of have um, you know in, 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 in the United States there's obviously a focus on you know our our national sports and whatnot and 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 we don't seem to go too too far into the global um, the global arena so to speak outside of perhaps football I think and and golf I'm sure as well. Uh, but it seems like it 's fair to say that the incidents that we see stateside are universal in that there are people worldwide who experience the same thing it 's that you know whether whether you are uh, a player, a coach, uh, a fan, an official, a member of the media, we all see the same type of, of poor behavior, uh, hopefully not as much, but it, it does exist. This is not a problem that is solely uh, reserved for just us over here in North America. This is a global thing that, that, if you and if you have
2: faced it, there are people worldwide who have faced it. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I I often say is that sport mirrors society. You know, the people who play sport are members of society. So really, we have situations, you know, I know that um, to be to be 100 percent clear, um, there has been a direct correlation between we had um, a political referendum in this country in 2016, which changed the course of the future that, that we're going down. Um, and, and, you know, there's a charity uh, which deals with discrimination and racism in this country called Kick It Out, and they commissioned a survey um, which basically showed that instances of discrimination, racism, sexism, homophobia had increased since that um, political referendum. We've noticed that assaults on between players and on officials has increased in that period of time. And I think that when these things happen, on a much grander scale, you know, well beyond sport. The ramifications of that and and the impact that it has on society is felt on the football pitch. And we as officials almost made responsible for that. In society, the police will apply the laws. In football, referees apply the laws. And that's why, ultimately, we do end up being like, law enforcement officers to an extent because what is going on in society is coming onto the football pitch is coming onto the baseball field is coming onto the American football field is coming onto whatever arena it is. And people are being deeply, deeply affected because, you know, you, you, you cannot measure the impact on the, being, a victim of an assault or even witness an assault will have because you know we have Sean here we have you Jack each of us three could have a very very different feeling about what we've seen and it will mean something different and it'll have a different impact upon each of us because we all have different uh, levels of tolerance we all have different levels of mental toughness we all have different levels of mental well-being and all these things and, and I think that you know things like that unfortunately. We we want them we want that tide to turn. We don't want things to continue getting worse. But that's where we are at. That's where we are at at the moment, unfortunately.
1: And Jack and I talk about you know when we you know from a it's all about perspective too. Like our experiences growing up, yeah. you know, when it comes to those sorts of situations, what we what we say at OSIP, you know, we, we say that sportsmanship doesn't only apply to the player; it applies to the coach. Absolutely. the referee the fans uh, uh the the media you know it it's it's all about education educating all facets yeah. of uh, all all those demographics mm-hmm. about good sportsmanship mm-hmm. and how they can then turn it and apply it to each other so you know it and we say we Jack and I say this all the time often the the ones who uh need to to hear about good sportsmanship the most are the ones who are not going to listen right so we have to apply and jack you can agree with this of course we can we have to hope that someone will set a good example for someone else and that's how you get the ball rolling
0: i yeah i would i would wholeheartedly agree with that and um you know, I, from, from personal experience, I think, you know, you, you talk about perspective and whatnot. We, 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 we lack, I, I shouldn't say it this way. Um, let me say it a different way. Certain people, when they bring that onto the field, onto the pitch, onto whatever, they, they, they for whatever reason, dismiss the, the perspective of the other person. Yeah. And and you know there are certain uh, to, to to provide a, a corollary example. We have certain laws in the United States when um, you get into you know a, a personal injury uh, lawsuit or or a car accident or anything like that, where you you take the victim as they are. So if you are, if you cause a car accident. And you happen to hit someone who ha- already has you know, a significant disability, even a, even a mental disability or something that uh, has has affected them mentally, where you can't necessarily see it symbolically through a cast or crutches or anything like that. You take that into account when you, when, when, as you go through the case, because what you've done is you've altered a person's way of life, you know, who, who's already on a particular path. You can't just dismiss that and say, well, I hit somebody in a car. It doesn't matter if that person had been traumatized by a a, a previous experience in, in certain parts of this country, that does matter. Um, and the same thing applies here as a sports official in that, if you if if a player causes an incident uh regardless of the sport uh, the official who may be assigned to work that game could have a previous experience that causes said official to react in a certain way, but more than likely what it does is it might cause the, you know, uh, the, the trauma, the mental trauma, the flashbacks, all of those things to intensify and affect the official moving forward. Um, to give an example from from my life, in the summer of, I believe it was 2014, uh, don't quote me on that, I'm sure that there are millions of people looking into my life as we speak, and I don't want to upset those people, um, but I believe it was that summer I was working uh, for a different league of, of, of baseball, and we were, we were servicing teams that were divided into two divisions. One division was, I think, 15- to 19-year-old uh, boys and men, and another division, I think, was 19- to about 24-year-olds. And the number of incidents that I had that summer – that involved uh, disqualifications. Uh, we call them ejections. Um, incidents that, you know, where, where someone wanted to either get into an argument or even potentially a physical fight. Uh, and the worst was when I actually had to terminate games to say, you know, we cannot play this game anymore because of the threat that we feel due to violence. Uh, or something similar that increased so significantly and the number of times that that happened by the end of that summer i was so distraught i was having those types of feelings and those emotional reactions that made me wonder why am i doing this i can't keep doing this this, this is this, this is lunacy this is insane that i keep thinking I'll go back out there and work for another small amount of money in order to continue to officiate a baseball game. When I know that the, or from my experience, uh, there's a, there's a probability that seems to be increasing that I may have to call the police to have them come by and protect me as I, you know, change out of my uniform and my equipment at my car. And, and, and that, is such a shame. And I think that that speaks to what the third team does is, you know, you you build resilience, you build mental toughness, you provide the, the, the resources, the examples, the exercises to officials specifically, but I imagine to many other people as well, to yeah. say, this is how we can get through this, and it's it may not be feasible to say to them, "Stop doing this," because, as Sean said, the people who need it the most aren't the ones who are going, are not the ones who will listen. Yeah. So instead, you empower the people who will listen to 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 survive this and to and to uh to get to the other side. Um, you know, would you? Would you is that an accurate? way to to summarize
2: it or to, to, to explain it. Yeah, I totally agree because I think it doesn't matter. You know, I think in in your, in your example there, you know, players did not see you as a human being. Yeah. They saw the badge that you were wearing um, and they looked at you as an authority figure. They did not recognize the color of your hair, your eyes, whatever it might be as a, as a human feature. They saw the badge. They saw Authority and, and they wanted to challenge authority, and I think that that 's the, the real challenge that that, that you have and, that, and I think that that 's why we need to protect officials because you said it there you know you contemplated walking away um, we 're talking with everybody we work with really not just county football associations in this country and, and other football associations in other countries you know we 're talking with Scotland and Wales and uh, FAI and Ireland and all those things. You know, we're not just talking about referee retention. We're talking about, you know, giving these people the tools. You know, when I talk about me being a mental toughness practitioner and and having that qualification, I apply that to people in workplaces. I apply that to young people in education where we go in, we work with them, we give them you know, when you have young people in, in education, they've got very much got societal pressures on them as well. You know, they've got exams coming up, massive, massive pressure. Peer pressure, do you want to drink some alcohol? Do you want to take some drugs? Um, pe- pressure from parents, are you applying yourself enough? Are you doing your homework? Are you revising? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? Massive, massive pressure on young people. Um, and in this country as well, there was a, another uh, report Uh, commissioned, which showed that um, since uh, 2004, instances of childhood depression have gone up by 45%. Now, that hit me hard anyway, but it hit me even harder when I realized that really that's talking about my generation. When I was at school... And and it, it it really those are the people I went to school with, you know. These are the people around me. These are the people I associate myself with, and and who I am one of. And and I, so that that really really spoke to me, and it really 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 hit me hard. And, and and so that's one of the reasons why we do that. But also working in businesses, you know, you see the amount of people on long term ill health, uh, you know, leave. You know, they're on they're on what you would call on the sick, but they're on long term ill health because. Somebody has actually said, look, we're going to pile a load of pressure on you, and then somebody else, we're going to pile a load of pressure on you, we're going to pile it all. Team's not working effectively. So this this then comes back to sport. So we're talking about an office. You know, you might have an office with an insurance company where one person in, in, in a team is taking on a much higher workload than everyone else and is almost carrying the team. And eventually it takes too much and their mental well-being suffers and they break down and they have depression and all and all these terrible sort of mental health challenges as a result of that so it's about getting teams to work more effectively it's about getting managers to understand better how they can work with employees and understand them again as human beings not just quote the handbook the staff handbook and say you've missed x y and z days we're gonna investigate you with human resources actually looking at them and saying if it's you jack me me being your boss actually saying look jack tell me what's going on how can I help and, and having that mindset and so you know the third team is not just about sport but it's amazing how much you can bring it back to sports we talk about people in businesses working in teams how can we manage teams best and get that workload spread so that everybody is pulling in the same direction and not one person being being held down so so it is in essence whether you're talking about
0: sports whether you're talking about schools, whether you're talking about businesses, it is, it is a message to, to say that the, the, the people involved, regardless of the role, are not just assets. They're not just machines. They're not just things that you can control one way or the other where you put in a particular input and you expect a certain output. We need to have empathy to understand that, that one way is not the only way, that we can, we can make adjustments, we can make certain changes, we can seek to understand more uh, about a person, you know, in order to make them work more effectively and make the team work more effectively rather than just go about it this old way. Uh, because, because those, you know, doesn't like, like you said, it doesn't matter if it's a business. It doesn't matter if it's school. It doesn't matter if it's sports. There's, there are elements of the team, uh, involved in all of them. And there are elements of sportsmanship, uh, that, that deal with this in all of them that speak to mental toughness, resiliency, and essentially empathy to understand that these are human beings who are working in this machine.
1: And you know what, Jack? You bring up you, know, you bring up a good point because in the United States, at least, there is a severe lack of mental disorder awareness. Um, you know, people just think that they look on the outside to for, to find problems, and for a lot of people, that's not the case. Um, so, I, I, Nathan, I don't know what it's like in in in, in England, but. Um, Do you see that same sort of lack of mental um, disorder awareness?
2: I'll tell you what I see, if I'm being totally honest. I see a massive disparity between um, my generation, and and I, and I, and I, I use that, you know, you talk about millennials, you talk about different generations and things like that. I think probably within my generation, probably up to people who are about 30, 35 now, there is a big, big difference between that age bracket, and then the people above them and the, and the previous generations that's gone before in terms of the attitudes that we have. And I think that what I'm really proud and really pleased of with, with, with the you know general society is that my generation is pushing so hard. And obviously now we're coming to an age where we're, we're in our 20s and we're in our 30s, my generation. And we're really, really pushing really, really hard to make this be on the agenda to make it happen. And it is making a big, big difference because we're, we're now seeing you know, Prince William uh, running a fantastic charity called Heads Together, which obviously he has the profile and he has the ability to to be able to get onto television a lot. He, he set up a, a program within the Heads uh, Together campaign called Every Mind Matters. And that's really, really important. That works with the National Health Service here which we we are very very lucky to have, where they are pushing really really hard. They have advertising space on television, so it's not just about him being able to actually give these talks and get involved with this. We had it in football as well. He's the um, what is he, he's the president. He's the president of the Football Association, uh, Prince William, um, and in the third round of the FA Cup, which is the one where the Premier League and the Championship teams come in, uh, in January last year. Every kickoff was one minute after you would expect it to be, so it'd be one minute past three or one minute, or thirty-one minutes past twelve, and that was to say one minute to think about mental health before we kick off this game. That's they, they they gave the name of the FA Cup final to uh, the sponsors are Emirates at the moment, the airline, and actually what they've done is given that up and said, look, we're going to call it the Heads Together FA Cup Final instead of the Emirates FA Cup Final. So I'm really, really pleased with the work that we're doing that. And obviously that FA Cup final, you know, it's like the equivalent of the Super Bowl in America. That's something that everybody across the world's looking at, the the English FA Cup final. Everybody wants to see that. So I think we're doing great work in this country. There's so, so much more to do. This pandemic has caused a lot of trouble for mental health, um, and it continues to cause a lot of trouble and we have to be very very careful we have to monitor very closely to make sure that we don't have a second pandemic which is a mental health pandemic because we are closer than we'd like to think on that and i hope that we can get the tide turned on the on the actual health and the viral pandemic in time that people can get back to normality enough soon enough so that they're not badly affected but it's something that we have a lot of optimism about going forward in the future when hopefully my generation when there's when a prime minister who's my age when all these things go forward in time I'm very very optimistic about the future and I think that things are going to change and I think things are starting to change but again bad things like a pandemic can happen um, and they can have a, an absolutely drastic effect on mental health and well-being and we've always got to be guarding against that.
0: As, as someone who is thirty seven years old i don 't know if I should be happy or sad, depending <laughs> upon which group you want to put me in mm-hmm. um, I, the, I guess the good news is that I may be physically thirty seven but Sean, you can attest to this. I really am mentally about twelve years old yeah, so you I think we're we 're both there okay so so we 're say- with us Jack you can come
2: with us you can come I'm all, our- I'm
0: all right i 'm on your team <laughs> i'm on your team that's it i'm in i'm in i'm in um do you think that there is anything uh, specific? I mean, we, I know we talked about mental health. We talked about we talked about a, a wide range of things. Is there is there anything else that you can point to specifically, either on the behavior or the points of a player, of a coach, of a fan, of a member of the media? Um, you know that that is a catalyst to. Uh, exacerbate some of this behavior that that we we didn't we haven't touched on. Is there anything else that we need to be aware of um, outside of just this general societal thing? Like I, I think, at least on our side of the world, and it could very well be the same over there. There is there is a, an element of competition that I think. Uh, drives some of the similar problems over here because obviously we live in a fully capitalist society. We understand that our economy is driven by competition. And I think that to, you know, in a vacuum, that's a very good thing for us. Um, the problem that may exist though is where um we take competition to a level where it becomes very immoral where we're making decisions and we're doing things that may not be illegal may not be against the law but they are very detrimental and they're very Mm -hmm. hurtful do you find anything like that or or anything else that we didn't talk about yet that needs to be addressed so that either your mission becomes easier or almost becomes non-existent because the, the goal has been achieved. I mean, Sean and I say this all the time, the goal of our organization is to not exist so that we don't have to, to, to do what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else that that kind of points to something like that from your end of things?
2: I don't, I, I, look, I don't know, Jack, but I, I, I think that, and I don't know what the situation is with, with officials of all sports in America, but if I talk about, Football, our national sport, soccer, as you would you would call it. Um, if you look at the the, the list of, of Premier League referees, okay, you will see that there is maybe I think the list consists of about twenty five referees, uh, maybe thirty. But there's one or two that are from below the Midlands in this in this country, and the rest are from the north of the Midlands, but mainly the north. That is where the bulk of your officials comes from. And I think that the really, to be honest, the, the only way that you can really evaluate is that is that it's a lot tougher in the north of, of the country where obviously I come from as well. So it's 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 a funny thing. And and I think that you know again without getting obviously into the, the real whys and wherefores, I think what you'll see is that even within an area within the you know a county within the the northeast of of England, you will have areas of affluence and you will have areas of socio-economic deprivation. And you know that when you referee a team, which is coming from an area of socio-economic deprivation, you're going to be in for a tougher game than you are from an affluent area. And I think that's the same the world over, I would imagine. Yes. What what I'm saying, yeah, yeah. So what I'm saying is that you have that, but then I think that, you know, when... I find that statistic about the, the pool of referees very, very interesting because it shows a level of mental toughness to get to the very, very top and, and a, re- a level of resilience to get to the very, very top. But really, are what, what we're saying that it comes from the grassroots of you're refereeing in tough leagues where you're having to really, really work hard, use all your management skills. You have to hone them. You either sink or swim and you have that toughness and it takes you right to the very top and i think that that's probably one of the big things geography you know i think that generally in the north you know obviously the powerhouse of 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 england and and the uk is parliament in london and then everybody knows that and so the north is a long way from that and it, it it feels very detached and i think there's some resentment and all sorts of things that go on. But really what it cuts down to is that whole thing and, uh, where it affects us as sports officials is the socioeconomic areas and the interesting lessons that we can learn from that. That's that is,
0: It's so funny that you say that because I see it over here with regard to baseball officials, when we compare it to, we can compare it on a micro or a macro level. Um, in, in, in my neck of the woods, you know, the, you know we, I, I live in a, in a relatively well-off area. Uh, I don't, I sometimes I feel out of place with that, but there are, there are places, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes down the road that are not as well-off. And when you work a game in that area, it is a different environment than when you work a game in my area. And it speaks exactly to that. And then on a larger scale, if you look at baseball, for example, as it pertains to North America, you can see that, I mean, especially as you go into Central and South America too, the officials who work solely in let's say the United States and Canada are of a different uh, set of experiences than those who might work specifically in say Latin America. You know, the the officials who have spent time working in the Dominican Republic or in Puerto Rico or in Venezuela uh, and and, and all of those areas that might be a bit more uh, impoverished Uh, and and whatnot they come out with a different level of experience perhaps we could call it resiliency that that makes it different and there is something to that so so your observation is spot on it's not just in england it is worldwide um you know it's, it's so so there is something to that
1: yeah jack you mentioned the you know capitalism and the and the and the culture of competition mm-hmm. in our country, and uh, and uh, you know, you're right. It can get pretty draconian, um, especially on on the field. I mean, you've you've you told me the stories of you having to eject parents yes from games because of how how fierce the competition from their eyes was, and how does that reflect on their kids? Yeah, you know, so. It can be it. It can be what you ejected one parent, who said, "What did he say? Uh, I could be home watching." Yeah, I was now. just <laughs> going to
0: tell that story. Is that uh, I, uh, Nathan? You will appreciate this story as a golf fan. Um, this was in 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 either my first or second year of officiating, and and I was assigned to work uh, a championship game between two teams that were thirteen-year-old boys and. It was so like the the boys on the field were like they couldn't care less. They were lost. They were whether they were having fun. They just they were not invested in the same way that the adults were. The coaches were bad. The parents were bad. And it got to a point where where my partner who I was working with had ejected somebody before I even had to. And there, were, I had to make a I had to make a call uh, at first base. That was a very close play. It went against one team, obviously, as these calls do. And a parent stood up uh, and and said, um, "Why don't you just go home if you don't want to be out here?" To me, saying because because apparently I was the the, the reason that you know th- this person's son's team was losing and whatnot. And so I ejected him from halfway across the field. I pointed to him in the stands all the way over there. And I said, all right, you're out of (laughs) here. And he goes and and he stands up and he starts walking away down the stands and away. And he goes, and this is where Sean will mark the the episode as mature. (laughs) He will say, good, I'll go home and watch golf instead of having to watch this shit. And I said to I, – I, I turned to my partner as this guy's leaving, and I said, I, I don't even think golf is on today. <laughs> because it was a Saturday in May. I think they were running the Kentucky Derby that day. And I was like, I just don't think that golf would put a, a, a major tournament up against the Kentucky Derby. That's just me. Now, they probably had some low-level tournament going on that, you know, Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods was not, were not participating in, but still, it was it, it was it 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 made for one of the greatest stories of of a disqualification of a fan. But it just goes to
1: show you, right? That yeah. fan could be a parent, and that parent was setting a bad example for every single person on that field and off that field. Yeah. As an adult. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. That's the dangers of this, that that sportsmanship can affect fans and parents. So I guess my my question for you, Nathan, is does your organization, I know you educate uh, various um, people outside of the context of sports, but within the context of sports, do you also educate participants, coaches, managers, parents as well?
2: No, no, I, I, I don't. But I think it, it, it's really interesting that we, we have worked with with various different staff members within county FAs, but
0: mm-hmm.
2: but not with not with the the, the the parents. But I think one of the things that, that probably I would say is interesting is that FIFA decided to change the laws. I think it was last year, not this year, and it they, they basically extended the cautions and dismissals, yellow and red cards, to um, club officials. So a manager or a physiotherapist or whoever it might be could could also be, be dealt with in that manner. And I think that that really helps a lot of the younger referees to actually have to challenge this behaviour because they can, although it's not great practice, if this person is being so... You know abusive and so challenging they can literally just go over, get the name, wave the card in their face, and get rid of them and I think that yeah. that 's part of the, the the problems that that we that I had when I was starting at grassroots level doing youth football was the fact that you know I remember one game I sent off i sent off I sent off the manager and his two coaches and I was then left with a problem that I'd actually sent off everybody that was responsible for that one thing. <laughs> I've and done so that. I had, make, yes. I had to make a decision on yes. what I was going to do. So I had to allow one of them to stay. Um because they needed they needed to have somebody to be responsible for the for the for the for the children. So I think that, that 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 can be a real problem and it takes gumption to actually do that. So I I I can completely empathize with you and, and what I can also say is that look FIFA helped the referees in 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 football but who's helping the the umpires in tennis or who's helping whoever it might be in in various different sports to actually um, deal with these situations and to 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 empower the officials to do something about it in in a correct and proper manner.
0: I think one of the great things though is that even though per se you, you may not be working directly with parents, coaches, fans, and media, by empowering the officials and by offering your services to schools and businesses and whatnot, you are essentially still doing that because by empowering the officials, first of all, you are empowering the people who will listen to you, and, you're, and you're, you're tilting the scales in their favor. But by working with the schools and the businesses, those entities are made up of the people who are the players, the coaches, the fans, and the media. So it's an indirect way, but it's still working.
1: Yeah, and as you an know? athlete, you're always on stage, right? Right. I mean, you're on stage on and off the field. What you do off the field can reflect you know your attitude in general, so you've got to be very careful
2: would we, we completely welcome it though you know I would completely welcome um, the introduction of for example potentially a laws of the game um, segment to coaching you know so, so if somebody takes their coaching badges in in the sport that they could actually then. Um, get a, 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 either an overview of the laws of the game, or even a conversation with the referee, where they can say, "Look, we'll bring a referee in here. If you've got any questions or you want to understand anything, here's your moment." Right. Um, and that really, really helps them. Even a little laws of the game test, a very basic one, I think would help them a lot. And I think that these are the things that we really want to want to do. I, I feel that there's something there. Is there?
0: <laughs> I got to tell you two quick stories about that. First of all, so I am the I'm the president of our local baseball umpire uh, uh, association for the the groups that service all of the uh secondary schools in this area so all the high schools and the middle schools and whatnot uh who who have interscholastic baseball and softball they utilize our organization and last year before the pandemic hit so it was probably january um one of the things that we decided to do was we 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 contacted all of the schools and we said, we're, we, we're going to have a meeting. And at this meeting, we're going to have a number of our officials be there. And we want all, as many coaches, whoever, it doesn't matter, athletic directors, parent, what, players, come on down. Yeah. It's free. It's easy. And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about the rules because we have a different set of rules depending upon obviously what level of baseball and softball you play. So the biggest difference that we have here in the States is that the official baseball rules, what you see in major league baseball has, you know, a a chunk of differences from baseball that's played at the high school or secondary school level. And they can be minute, but if people don't know them, that's where conflict looms. And that's where coaches say, you know, you got this wrong and blah, 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 blah. And we say, no, we didn't get this wrong. You don't know the rule difference. So yeah. we invited them all in. And I, 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 I swear to you, not a single person showed up to this meeting other than the officials, Wow. And so so, you know, it, it, it was it, it, the most I had was I had one coach email me about a day after the meeting and he said, I, you know, I'm sorry, I couldn't make this meeting. Could you know, is there anything that you could send me that, you know, for for what I missed? Is that the other? So I was happy to oblige this coach. But it was it was that was the, the sad thing is and, yeah. you know, you it's easy to feel discouraged But at the same time, you have to keep fighting the good fight. And the other story I was going to tell that I think Sean was alluding to is that we have a number of uh, people who have been evaluated, you know, through by 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 being tested on these rules and whatnot. And the the manager of the New York Yankees, who is uh, you know, they, they are obviously the you know, the 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 brand of baseball that is known worldwide. They were one of two teams that came to England last year for the, you know, the London series. Well, their manager, Aaron Boone um, was given a test before he, he, this was years before he was even considered for this job. Mm -hmm. And he was a member of the media at the time. And it was a very informal test. Uh, They were just kind of seeing what people knew about the rules. And it was a 10 question test. He got one correct wow so so when he got the job to manage the the new york yankees sean called me up and said well what do you think of this and i said well you remember the story i told you <laughs> about how the guy who's now in charge went one for ten in understanding the rules of mm-hmm. the game so it's it, it is you know, we we we're all you, me, Sean, we're all on the same page when it comes to this stuff. It's a matter of trying to figure out how to get other people to understand that. And and I think that leads me to my next question. What can the average person do to assist you and the third team achieve its goal or its mission? And how, how can that be applicable to everyone?
2: I think that really uh, communication is key, you know, and I talk about this an awful lot, you know, it's a key um, aspect of being an official. We have to be good communicators, both verbally and non-verbally. And I think that that's one of the things that, that can really, really uh, help everybody to achieve uh, what they want to achieve. I think that referees, sometimes they have, well, you know, so I speak about football referees in, in, in England in particular, They have this um, fear sometimes of letting the referee manager know that there is a problem, maybe with their mental well-being or whatever it might be. They don't want to show any weakness to that person because they know that that person could have a say in whether they're promoted or not. And I think that that's why when I deliver the workshops, um, I say, look, that door's shut, okay? Okay. It's us in this room now. We're all referees. We all understand the challenges that we go through. We all know that there are things that we find more difficult than others that maybe even keep us awake at night. And I think that it's those things that that being prepared to actually talk about them and, and being able to reframe that mindset to be able to say, do you know what, actually, I'm talking about something that I find very difficult. I'm not being weak. I'm being strong. This is a strength. This is an opportunity to develop. And so I think that really, it's not actually really so much about helping me as, as, as so much as helping yourself, because if you are prepared to talk and you're prepared to have these conversations and to be able to get the advice that you need, you know, which, which again is the third team we can provide, then you are giving yourself the best chance and we are helping you give yourself the best chance. And I think that that, that, comes from not just referees but also from from really everybody that we work with being in, being prepared to communicate being prepared to say actually i find that quite difficult or i didn't feel very good after i did that and and that's you know, i've been worried about that and that's actually really caused me a problem and being able to do those things being able to help you know each other by sharing those experiences when i talk about that locked room Another referee sitting there, you know, maybe feeling very, very nervous about being in this room. And why have they brought the third team in? You know, there's nothing wrong with me and whatever. But actually, they sit, they listen. Other people engage, and it brings them into it. It brings them in. They might not. They might not get to a point where they're actually ready to stick their hand up and say, "Actually, do you know what I felt this?" But when we do the the, the, the some little tasks within workshops they might actually be prepared to write it down on a note. And then when the spokesperson for the table, that's why we strategically put them into tables of five, so that we know that if there is somebody who's not confident in speaking about a challenge, that they might be prepared to to meet us in the middle almost and write it down on a note and then have the spokesperson for their table that they're sitting on. And then their view, it does get aired, and they don't just get left behind. So I think it's about things like that and about, promoting that and, and making it a positive thing and, and reframing a lot of mindsets. Because, you know, if you want to become the next level of, of, of baseball official, you know, you know what you've got to do. And you know the challenges that you've got to surmount to get that as well. And I think that it's the same with any officiating of any sport, really. You know what you've got to do. You know some of the challenges that you face where you might have a weakness that you need to improve on um or a challenge that you've struggled to deal with and it's actually about having that strength and that ability to actually say look um i'm I'm struggling with this and i'm i'm going to put my hand up and i'm going to say look how can we help this and how can we work this forward and i think that 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 would kind of be my message
0: you know i think that that's a that's the perfect place to to you know to 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 pause and reflect on that because the, the 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 message of, of what you just said speaks beyond sports, too. You know, it, it takes a lot of bravery, uh, vulnerability, however you want to label it, to be able to say, you know, I'm having a problem. I, I, I would, when, I was, when I was teaching students at, at, you know, the university level, regardless of what I was teaching them, I said the three hardest things to say in the English language are I'm sorry, I need help. Worcester sauce, (laughs) you know, and, and, and we, and I, and we still struggle with the last one, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's the God's honest truth that we as, as human beings have a problem saying some of those things and to be able to be vulnerable, to be able to, to, to say, I I got an issue with something and I need to talk about it is probably one of the most brave things anyone can say, regardless of the context, whether it is something as stereotypical as an addiction, or it is someone who is a sports official looking for the resilience to, to overcome a, a a bad experience and and continue to do the job that they have been blessed to do and 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 I think that that's you know that's the best way to put it um before we before we wrap nathan uh i'd like to give you the floor one more time if there's anything else that you'd like to say anything else you'd like to promote you know we obviously know that the third team dot c o dot u k is the is the website and Although you are confined to England and Ireland and, 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 and the kingdom there, I, I, you know, I don't know if you would be able at this point to hop a flight and spread your message over here in the States yet, you know, unless you pay the officials, as we talked about very early on. To, you know, um, but what is there anything else you'd like to share, you'd like to say before we, we, we wrap it up?
2: No, definitely. I've had some really, really good um, comments and some really, really good feedback on on the blog from some American um, soccer referees. And um, you no, know, I'd absolutely love that to continue to grow. And and you know, obviously, you mentioned the website there. If you go onto the website thirdteam.co.uk, and um, if you go to the bottom there, you can sign up to receive the the third team blog directly to your um, your email inbox uh, every week. It will be. Friday at five o'clock GMT. So I don't know what that would be in your locality. I, th- I think that
0: would be, I think that would be the year 2002. If <laughs> I'm doing my, Okay. <laughs> graduated high school then. Hey, Sorry. remember those days when you were, you had hair and you were good looking, Sean, you know? Yeah. I remember that.
2: <laughs> yeah. So you can, you can reach us there. And, and obviously um, we're on Twitter at uh, the third team, three RD team on Twitter. Um, and on all the other things, social, um, such as Facebook and Instagram, we are um, we are the third team. That is the name. We are the third team, um, and also catch us on LinkedIn. We're nearly at a thousand um, followers on the LinkedIn page, so really excited about hitting that milestone. That's
0: that's that's fantastic, uh, Nathan. I cannot thank you enough. Uh, for, for spending some time with us uh, you know I'm, I'm so happy that the technology is available to do so yeah. you know across such a, a large body of water that I don't think any of us want to swim across at any point in time um, um, I'll apologize on behalf of us leaving and starting the 13 colonies many years ago uh, from the get-go just since since we have the, the connection um, but um, this, this has been fantastic and I, I wish you, and I, Sean, I think I speak for you as well, I wish you and the third team nothing but success moving forward to to an infinite amount, you know, especially with, with, with the pandemic hopefully coming to a close. And yeah. as you said, that to make sure that we don't have a second pandemic that is a mental pandemic, that, that, that stuck with me. Um, because I know I've experienced that too. So, um, I want you to succeed and, and I hope that you know that our organization stateside is at your complete disposal for whatever you may need, uh, from us at any point. So thank you and, and, and God bless and, and keep fighting the good fight. Cause, cause you have, you have us in your corner.
2: Thank you so much. Absolutely um, delighted to to share this time with you and, and to have the backing of, of the foundation. Um, I'm such a big fan of the work, uh, obviously, that you do. And I think it's just wonderful that sportsmanship is, is, is held in such high esteem by yourselves. And I'm really glad that somebody is, again, fighting that good fight in, in America as well. And, and hopefully one day, yes, as he said before, I'll, I'll be able to come across and work with some officials in in the United States, which would be an absolute dream. Thanks so much.
0: Uh, you're you're welcome here, and you you'll, you I think Sean will will let you crash at his place because I don't have a I don't have a place for it. But uh, thank you again, Nathan. Uh, Sean, thank you uh, for your work as as always. As a reminder: um, not only uh, the Third UK, but osipfoundation.org podcast at osipfoundation.org, facebook.com slash Foundation, Twitter and Instagram at Osef Foundation, hashtag how you play the game. So uh, for, for Nathan, for Sean, uh, thank you everybody for joining us again. We uh, hope you have a fantastic holiday season. We'll talk to everybody in 2021, which I know will be a better year for all of us. So until then, everyone, treat each other with respect. How You Play the Game is a production of the OSIP Foundation Incorporated. The producer-engineer of this episode is Sean Ryan. Music by SoundSpring Studio. The executive producer of How You Play the Game is Jack Furlong. For more information, visit osafoundation.org.